Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. You're going to be hearing a special little episode in celebration of Persona 3 Reload, the remake of Persona 3 coming out this week on PlayStation and Xbox. I'm excited for that. Are you excited for that, Sean? I'm very excited for that, although there are also 5 billion video games coming out like Yakuza uh-huh. and all kinds of stuff. But yes, I'm excited for that one also. Yes, I'm excited for that. I'm excited for Yakuza 8. I'm excited for Final Fantasy. Well, I'm not really excited for Final Fantasy 7 Remake, but I feel like I need to play it. Uh, Tekken 8 is getting great reviews, yep. and after Street Fighter 6, I'm like, man, should I should I just invest in a fighting stick and get Tekken 8 also and just go go to town on this and make that my personality? But I, I know I will at least be playing Persona 3 Reload. I know some of our listeners will be interested in it. We have obviously done many Persona 3 episodes over the years. Our episode on the original Persona 3 game, if you want to go way the hell back is episode 60 from i think 2013 that's that's a long time ago we're almost at 500 sean episode 60 we're two two digits not three we've been three digits for a while um so you listen to that we have all the persona 3 movies which um if you're a japanimation station listener and if you're not you should be we did put out those again remastered they sound nicer now uh, over on Japan Animation Station, so you can find those four kind of cut up so they're in a nice kind of digestible form, and they're over there. But uh, we're going to be re-releasing some old podcast segments this spring because we're, we're going to be busy with some other things, just so you know. We're going to talk about this more next week, but we've got a lot of Japan Animation Station work to do, and uh, I am in the process of finishing my dissertation. Sean is still a full-time teacher. So the Weekly Stuff podcast, um, I don't want to say it's going on the back burner. I think we are still going to do it when we can. Um, but I think there's going to be just a little shift in scheduling. But as that's going on, there's some pieces that I want to re-release and do some fun things with. And we're going to start this week with a segment from our 10th anniversary episode from... 2022, where we did a bunch of different segments that I'm not sure everyone heard because that episode was 10 hours long, which was very funny to Sean and me, but maybe alienating to some listeners. I don't know. Uh, but we, as part of that episode, we did review something called Persona 3 The Weird Masquerade, which is the stage play version of Persona 3, recorded and released on DVD, which is how, how we, well, we saw it online, but the DVD was ripped and yes. so on. You guys know how this works. And uh, we reviewed it. Yeah, YouTube. I think my brother Thomas is on this segment as well. The occasional Thomas was there, um, which was fun. Yeah, so you will hear us talking about one of the weirdest things we've ever watched, which is Persona 3 The Weird Masquerade. And I thought this would be a fun way to celebrate the release of Persona 3 Reload with a version of Persona 3 many fewer people have engaged with. Yes, but I think it's... I have a lot of fond memories of this podcast. There's a lot of talk about, like, weird theater technology and all that kind of stuff they do. And, you know, rear projection and all kinds of cool shit. I think I googled and found, like, the the theater that it was played in and all that kind of stuff. Um, So, yeah, it's a very fun conversation. If people want to watch Persona 3 The Weird Masquerade, it's just there on YouTube and you can find it there. Um, And if you want to hear us talk about it, well... I think it's a pretty good episode. 
Yeah. So presented here as a standalone episode for the first time is our Persona 3 The Weird Masquerade review. I will have the link to whatever version we were watching in the show notes if you are interested in that. And we will be back. We will have a brand new episode next week that is going to be all original. Probably talk a little bit about Persona 3 Reload. I'll have played a little bit of it. You might have played a little bit of it. Um, and all sorts of other stuff. I've been playing the new Prince of Persia. That game rocks. I can't wait to talk to you guys about that. I'm sure you've been up to stuff. We'll have a fun stuff week next week. Send in listener mail if you got it. Whatever, we'll do it all. Oh, I've been up to some stuff, Jonathan. It's time to talk about one of the most seminal topics of this podcast, Persona. No, not the classic Ingmar Bergman film about two sad women slowly losing their minds, but the series of JRPGs Sean introduced me to in episode 26 of this podcast on December 24th, 2012, where he delivered an unexpected, unplanned, incredibly long monologue on a crazy new game he'd fallen in love with, then called Shin Megami Tensei Persona 4. The rest, as they say, is history. Our big Persona 4 episode came out a few months later on March 4th, 2013, in episodes 35 and 36, and our Persona 3 episode followed in August on episode 60. And of course, we've recorded so much about Persona 5, there's literally a 14-hour podcast about it. So of course, we had to invite Persona to our 10th anniversary party, but since we've talked so much about Persona over the years, we had to ask ourselves, what was there left to cover? And Sean, can you tell us about the kind of crazy answer we came up with? Yeah, I mean, as you say, Jonathan, we did so much Persona stuff that it was really hard to figure out what was something we could do that was also in the scope of something feasible for this podcast. Because we obviously couldn't like play through all of like Persona 2 or either of the Persona 2s for this. Um, and I realized that as is fairly common with a lot of franchises in Japan, um, there's not just a game. There's not just like manga and novels and animated TV series and animated movies, but there is also staged musical adaptations of the Persona franchise. It started with two adaptations of Persona 4 um, to musical, and then in 2014, they started a series of what was ultimately kind of four slash like four and a half um, stage musicals because the four, the fourth one is kind of like two parts Um adaptation of Persona 3 called Persona 3 The Weird Masquerade that is both based on the game and in parts also based on the four-part movie series adaptations they did of Persona 3, which also is connected to our podcast because we, of course, did episodes on all of those. And so I desperately <laughs> looked online to see, like, is there a way for us to be able to watch uh, the Persona 3 The Weird Masquerade? And luckily, um, there is, and it has been subtitled. Um, so for today's episode, we are discussing part one of Persona 3 The Weird Masquerade, the musical stage adaptation of Persona 3, and part one is called The Blue Awakening. Yes, or Ao no Kakse, you might see it as. And if you want to watch this for yourselves, uh, a kind person subtitled it. It's on YouTube, and I have put the link to the playlist with all of that in the show notes. So if you want to stop the podcast and go watch what we're about to talk about, you can, and that is there. And and we are not doing the entire like four-part play because it would be too much for this thing. Uh, and also not all of it has been subtitled, but we are doing uh, part one, the blue, uh, what is it, Ao no Kakse, blue what? Yeah, the Blue Awakening. The Blue Awakening. Uh, and to talk about it with us, we also have a very special guest. We have with us someone who has occasionally been on the show before. You might call him Occasional Thomas. He is the world champion in Persona 3 Dancing Moon Knight, Persona 4 Dancing All Night, and Persona 5 Dancing Star Knight. It is Occasional Thomas Lack. 
Hi, everyone. It's nice to be here. Yes, but Thomas, you have not been on the podcast in a while. I think you were with us. I think it was Kingdom Hearts 3 was the last one I was on, which oh, was... Oh, we did, ha- we did have you talk about that. I don't even remember how many years ago that was. That was a lot of years ago. Yeah. I know you talked about the Persona dancing games with us when 3 and 5 came out, but yes. that was while... Sean lived in Colorado, and I was back in Colorado. We've never had you on remotely like this. So we are recording this in three separate states, Iowa, Texas, and uh, Washington today, to have Thomas on the podcast. But because you are our guest, Thomas, I will let you kick this off. We watched the uh, Persona 3 Weird Masquerade Blue Awakening play. It's about 90 minutes long. We watched the... They performed this with both a male main character and a female main character, but there's very few differences uh, to the point where the male main character sings in a female register. Um, but the version we watched, this is a performance from January 12th, 2014. And Thomas, I'm going to let you kick it off and tell us what you thought about this play. And then, Sean, you and I will tell our thoughts. Well, I think it's really important when you start thinking about Persona 3, The Weird Masquerade, to go in with an open mind. Um, And I think it starts on a really high note and immediately sort of crashes and sort of stays down. But there's a lot of stuff I like about it. Um, First off, it's a musical, right? And there are six songs in this. six songs. In this, uh, what is it, about 100 minutes of this musical? Not enough songs. (laughs) Not enough songs. Um, They do every... Japanese song from Persona 3 that they can, I think, because it is easier to sing those. Even if they bafflingly don't fit the story whatsoever, they sing those closing songs because they're easier to sing in Japanese, I imagine. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's interesting because this came out after the first movie, right? Yes, yeah, it was one year after the first movie, and it's written okay. by the stage play. was written by the same person who did the screenplay for the movies. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, there was an advertisement for this play in the Blu-ray of movie one. I actually went and found it today. So, And they make yeah. a reference to the first movie when they're at the movie theater. They say, oh, let's go see Key 3 Spring of Birth instead of P3 Spring of Birth. So they're yeah. being kind of playful with it. Yeah. So, but what did you think of it, Thomas? Is it is it good? Is it bad? Is it weird? <laughs> well, so, yeah, I watched I watched both the, the male and the female version. That's, uh, what is it? Sakuya and Kotone. Mm-hmm. Are their names in this adaptation? Um, I think there, there. I enjoyed the female one a little bit more, just because it is slightly more playful. Um, I think the the choice to adapt the main character as uh, the version of himself that's in the movies is probably a good choice, but it also makes it a little bit difficult to have him be a relatable character in this, you know, hundred minute musical. Um, the songs are interesting but there is a lot of exposition they have to do in this and it just Mm -hmm. if you haven't played the game at least once and probably also seen the movies i don't think you'd have any idea what's going on in any of this whatsoever yeah Yeah. i agree that that it is it's not really it doesn't feel like it's suited or considered at all for a new audience it is 100 designed for people who know this story going into it and and that being the case I did enjoy the experience of watching it. Watching it a second time was like, okay, maybe I didn't need to watch this a second time. I sort of got it the first time. So that's my that's my quick review. I cannot imagine watching this a second time, because I'll just put my cards on the table. When we came up with this topic, Sean, I thought this play 
would be sort of fun bad, and it would be fun to talk about. It's mostly boring bad. It is mostly people who are not great actors or singers standing around dryly expositing the exposition from the beginning of Persona 3. And then when they sing, it's mostly embarrassingly bad because most of the people cannot sing, and it's bad. So I struggled to get through this, I have to be honest. I thought this was kind of terrible and amateurish and embarrassing. I really enjoyed this. Now, I'm not going to disagree um, with a lot of those criticisms, um, but I think I may be more predisposed to it in the first place because, I, like, how much experience do you guys have watching, like, live theater? Is it something you, like, commonly do? Or Oh, much? probably not commonly. I mean, in high school, I guess, I'd watch school plays and stuff like that. But no, I don't necessarily go to a lot of live theater. I listen to some musicals, like Broadway stage recordings. But yeah, I have, I, I've seen, I mean, this reminded me also of, like, some of the, like, live-action anime movies you'll get where everyone mm-hmm. sort of looks like they're cosplaying. But I haven't seen a lot of the other stage plays in this vein. Well, I have, I have never seen another stage play in this vein. But, like, I, I go and see... <laughs> I mean, you can't see other stage plays in this vein unless you import the DVDs or you find a pirated copy online, right? Like, this style of theater, in my experience, doesn't really exist in America. Um, And I don't really go see musicals much because I don't particularly like musicals, uh, but I like Shakespeare a lot. So I pretty regularly go see Shakespeare plays. I probably see at least one Shakespeare play a year. I haven't yet in Texas because I don't know where to go yet. Um, They haven't outlawed Shakespeare yet? They 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 have not yet allowed outlawed Shakespeare yet because they don't know how gay Shakespeare is. Um, once they get onto that track, I'm a little bit nervous about it. Um, the thing I will say about about this is that it's a very kind of like like it's it's a kind of a rough production around the edges. Like the acting is not great. I do think that the the singing is not great, with the exception of. Um, I only really watched the male main character version. I, I glanced through the female one and saw that it was so similar that it, I just didn't seem worth it to watch. And the guy who plays the main character in the male version, who's Aoi Shota, who's also a voice actor and a musical artist, like that guy is a very talented singer. Yes, um, he is great. He is a much more talented singer than anybody else uh, in that play. Um, and particularly, it's like very stark because the woman who who plays Mitsuru, I think, is decent at the acting, is the worst at the singing, and she cannot hit any of the high notes in Wiping All Out. Um, and it's like it's very brutal. funny to then have Aoi Shota there able to sing in this extremely high register. Um, and it's like, you should have given this dude fucking Wiping All Out or given her a different song uh, because just like really not there. Um, so, like, a lot of that stuff around the edges, I think, is very rough. Um, and I think the acting is very up and down. Some of the performances, like Akihiko, I think, are quite good. Some of the performances, like Yukari, I think, are, like, really poorly sort of balanced. Um, that she's, like, way too energetic and way too forceful. Um, what I really enjoyed was the staging of it. I think the staging of it is rad. I really love the rear projected screen in the back which in my experience in seeing theater is typically used for like a dynamic background, but not something that's integrated into the like staging of the dramatic production. Whereas here they have a rear projected screen in the back and they have some like front projectors as well that project onto the stage for some of the effects like fire and stuff. So it actually interacts with the actors like off their skin. Um, But they use that um, rear projected background to do um, both actual just straight up backgrounds sometimes, but also often dramatic elements like characters appear, like text will appear on the screen. There's one point where the like battle interface from the game shows up and the text that like Mitsuru has been charmed shows up there. 
And that, I think, is like a really creative implementation that I'm not familiar with other productions of this style to know whether or not that's like the typical style. Um, but I've never seen something quite like that that's so kind of multimedia. Um, the way that everything is lined up to um, sound effects and stuff like that that are pulled from the game. Um, the music that is the instrumental music, I think, are a lot of really good pulls from like Persona 3 Fest, the Interstice of Time song, which is the dungeon song from that game, as well as they use a lot of the opening act song, which is the opening cutscene theme from Persona 3 Fest, is a great track that is like underused a piece of music that's, I think, a really good pull. And so a lot of that stuff, when like people aren't talking and characters aren't actively and characters on stage aren't singing. Um, I really love the production. I think all of the action type stuff is really fun. There's a, a couple of like really great sort of standout sequences, particularly the one at the end when they enter the school in Tartar and it transforms into Tartarus while they're in there and it gets weird and abstract and kind of surreal in the performance and characters are like pantomiming being trapped and they the actress that plays Yukari and Mitsuru mime each other um, and stuff. Like all of that is so good. There's just like a really talented physical performance and dramatic staging to it that is really let down by I think a lot of the specifics of the acting and the singing and stuff that makes it feel like that side of the performance is very underemphasized in favor of the more kind of like dramatic spectacle of the kind of hero play that they're putting on. I would definitely agree with all of that, Sean. I think the um, I did have this in my notes, the exact scene you were just talking about, and there's also the scene preceding that where you have deep mentality playing. And they're all running around like they're going to the school. And then it gets like all surreal out of that. I did think the choreography there was fantastic. There's a moment where you have, uh, I think it's early. It's the, it's the shadow that like threatens the main character before he does his persona invocation with the evoker. And they have, it's just several of the dancers all moving their bodies together in like, with like black leotards on. So they look like a big mass of shadows. There's some of that interpretive dance stuff that I do think is cool. And when it would get back into that mode, I liked it. But I will have to say that whenever anyone opens their mouths and talks, it got very boring very fast. I think, um, for the most part, that's true. Especially any scene that has Ikutsuki, I think, was basically really boring because he only yeah. exposits. There were some good like dialogue scenes, like um, the scene at the theater when they're trying to decide what movie to watch. I think is actually like a fun little scene to watch. Especially that's actually different in the female version. I really like that version. Um, it brings in the element that she's like working at the theater and trying to convince mm. them to watch the longest movie. Um, you did tell me that that scene was different. I went and looked it up. That was great because I yeah. think I like Aoi Shota in his singing and stuff, but I think the characterization on the MC is very confused in the male one. In the female one, they actually give her something of a personality, and that scene is very funny there. I, I agree with that, Thomas. And then there's also like... Um, the only scene that's at the school when they take the train there, which is an instrumental bit, which is also yeah. pretty good. And then they're like talking to Fuka for the first time. And like, like that has this legitimately funny moment when the main character is like, Oh, I know who can be your friend. These two. And yeah. he leaves himself out. I think yeah. that's a good scene. I agree. I think some of the kind of like daily life stuff is a lot better than the kind of like dramatic dialogue um and that and that with the main character the male main character i think like there are moments where it works but i think it's like a phenomenally difficult characterization to try to pull off in live theater which needs to be very exaggerated 
Um, and so, like, him having his whole affectation is that he doesn't care about anything, right? He has his catchphrase from the movie, Do de Mui, which I love the translation we had put a trademark after every time they yes. translated it, which I thought was very funny. Um, so the subtitles would say over and over again, for Do de Mui, they would translate it as, it doesn't matter, and it would be, it doesn't matter, trademark logo. And I, that was, like, the most entertaining part of this whole thing for me, yeah. is the whoever subtitled this had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, that was a very funny little addition to the subtitling, the fan sub. Um and and so that characterization of him being like very like internal removed aloof from other characters, I think is just a hard characterization to try to do in live theater. It is just not really calibrated for that format. Um, and so I'm like I, I think I'm kind of like sympathetic for the difficulties in getting that to come across. And I think when they kind of break from some of that characterization, do have him be a lot sassier? It works better for me, even if it doesn't necessarily make the dramatic character arc make sense it makes sense it makes like the those specific dialogue scenes a lot more enjoyable he's sassier but he's mostly just an asshole to everyone that was kind of my thing with this is that he's just sort of mean to all of these people and he's it's not like in the movie the way they do his characterization in the in the four films is that he's very shut off and kind of nihilistic and i think there's even implications of like you know, borderline sociopathy and that he has difficulty, like, understanding feelings and, like, accessing his feelings. And it's a very emotional arc. And it is, as you say, Sean, incredibly a tough lift if you were to try to do that on stage because a character who is emotionally shut off on stage is hard when it relies on exaggeration. But in this, like, he has feelings. He's just a dick to everyone. And, like, he's kind of standoffish, but in a very sort of mean way throughout the play that, like, when they would then try to come around to the more meaningful moments of, but you guys are my friends, and at the end, like, I have something to live for, I have something to fight for, it just falls very flat in a way it obviously does not in the excellent movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the inconsistency with his characterization sort of makes the payoff at the end of part one difficult because it's the uh-huh. same like narratively it ends at the same place movie one does right yeah yes but like when he decides when they're in the gym waiting for it to turn into tartarus and he decides like you know he sides with akihiko like no if we if she's still alive we have to go save her that feels a little unearned in this version because he's been sort of like back and forth so it doesn't feel as like impactful as it does in the movie when his decision to go there is like clearly motivated and clearly a progression for the character. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree that it's, it's a thing of where like, like my overall impression is that it feels like the story is kind of like the dramatic story, which they are adapting effectively from the movie is there almost like paradoxically as like set dressing where like the main emphasis is really on like the dramatic staging and the the action and the sort of the spectacle scenes which is much more from my, what I understand is all pulled from like this tradition of like sentai stuff which originally comes from like out of theater not from TV necessarily um, the kind of like the hero action show so it's like all of that kind of like the stuff that is more, more dance like in our action scenes is like super cool and feels much more technically skillful than stuff that I've seen in American live theater. Um, But all of the like actual plot and character stuff feels like it's just like, we're going to stand here and do these scenes from the game in order to the story to technically move forward. So we can get to the next set piece where we can have everyone running around and hitting swords and doing the like cool stuff with the background and and the sound effects and all that shit. It's interesting. I I was going to ask about the Sentai connection because there is a very clear, like, 
if you've seen five seconds of any Super Sentai show, the choreography of this is very reminiscent of that. Because Sentai shows also... Like, a lot of what's in this play is... There's actually very few props. A lot of it is stuff on the screen behind them. And then a lot of it is miming and stuff like that. And when they, like, fire the gun, the gun is not, like, a prop with moving pieces. It's entirely them, like, doing dramatic moves with their head. And obviously a Super Sentai show will have more props on screen. But there's a lot of, like, miming and mimicry going on. And it is not a fully fleshed out production in the way you might think of like an American superhero show. And that's part of the fun of Super Sentai. So that coming from having kind of a theatrical tradition actually makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that's the stuff that... And I obviously don't want to like present myself as an expert on that stuff because I'm very much not. Um, but it's like, it's my understanding that all that kind of comes out of that theatrical tradition. And that's like, it's evolved into this thing where you also have these adaptations of different like anime media properties and stuff like that in games. Cause so much stuff has these musical adaptations. I mean, they're incredibly common um, and they're generally seem to be like this. And they're, you know, you have the, all the actors dressed up like the characters from the game and they wear like very bad wigs that have, you know, the hair colors of the like characters, you know? So it's like Fuka has to be saddled with this very like weird, like light green hair color that is, looks great in the game is weird to see on a person in real life with the wig and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it has all of those elements of the very kind of uh, like kind of unbelievable costuming, but it so emphasizes the dramatic, like physical performance of running around on stage and having these like well choreographed um, big sequences and using technology to emphasize that. And it's also and all that is reinforced by the very sparse um, like framing of the theater because the theater space is already a fairly narrow theater space. Like, I looked up the theater online because I was just curious to see what it looked like. And it's a relatively small space, like, in terms of, like, how many people are in the theater and stuff. Um, and what they did is they made the already relatively narrow theater stage um, even narrower by adding in these two blocks on either side that can fold in and out that create a third tier. And then they built a bottom tier that's your first tier that juts out the front and this even more narrow piece of stage, which is where most of the main action takes place. Um, and so they have this like narrow three-tiered staging that means that the the dramatic staging of like the blocking of actors and movement on the stage is much more vertical and depth, like it's y-axis and z-axis, and not x-axis, which is what we're really used to in in more traditional Western theater. It's either theater in the round, which is kind of 360 degree, which you can do, or it's very much about like the broad width of the stage and blocking actors on that width more than trying to block them above and behind characters and stuff. And so there's lots of characters appearing dramatically from off screen above or off stage, like above other characters and coming down or coming out front into the audience. Um, and that really dramatic movement, I feel like is what they emphasize. Um, and that stuff I think is very cool and not something I've ever really seen before. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's, it's definitely um, the most striking part of this production. And when it's working, it's because they're making use of all of those elements. And as you say, the video wall, there are some really cool interactions they do there. There's a moment early on when you've got people, you've got like, so the, the play opens with this sort of like little prologue, and then you have the big soul phrase as your first musical number, which is almost like the opening movie of the play. And then you have the people running around in the dark hour being turned into coffins. And there's a moment where there's a shadow on the video wall that like slaps a person who's like just a guy running around. And it's 
the video wall isn't doing anything. It's just showing a video. And so the guy is like pantomiming getting slapped a bunch. And I, and then there's about a lot of interpretive dance that the shadows are doing to like show that they are scary. And some of that stuff I did think was very cool. Well, I think what it is is that it's because that thing is like a rear projected screen. So I think there are one or two times where I'm pretty sure they have someone standing behind the screen to create a silhouette from the other side. So there's a couple of times where they do that in the dark hour to create that effect, which I think is a cool, cool idea. I almost wish they did more of it because it's only a couple of times and it's that one you identified at the very beginning. They do it. And there's one other time during the dark hour they have silhouettes on the screen that like seem clearly to be actual people moving and not part of the video being projected. Um, I think that that's that's kind of cool. I must not have caught all that because I, the, the version we're watching is kind of low resolution. This is a... <laughs> yeah. This is a this is a pro shot. This is like you know they they filmed it professionally, edited it professionally. It came out as a DVD, but the the fan sub version is like a 480p, then uploaded to YouTube, which does its compression thing, and so it does not look very good when you put it on a TV. But you you get the general idea. I do actually kind of wish, and I generally wish this about pro shot stuff that it cut out and showed us the audience a couple of times because I'd love mm-hmm. to see sort of the audience space as well. Um, but we don't get to see that during the performance here. One one element I think we we should zoom in on because this is some of the stuff that I want to hear Thomas's uh, feelings on because he has a lot more professional experience I guess in this area is what do you feel how do you feel about like the use of the music both like the like songs that are performed but also just like the use of persona music as like instrumental music in in the performance. Well, yeah, and you mentioned the the instrumental ones they used like the Interstice of Time and the opening act from from Fess. They make really good use of those. Maybe a little too much, actually, mm-hmm. to the point where, like, the interstice of time becomes, like, the driving, like, force behind the, the underscore of the of the play. Which is fine. Like, it's effective. But they, they have a lot of music they could have pulled from, I think. Um, and I think that's also sort of my complaint with the vocal songs as well, is, like, there are six in this musical, and I assume they had planned to make more. And I also kind of assumed they weren't sure if they'd be able to, um, like, just from the one they use at the end here, it's like, maybe they chose that one because they weren't sure if they were going to get to actually do the ending at some point. Um, anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, I, I think the selection of especially the vocal songs is really interesting because dramatically, I think they they work fairly well, like in spirit, if you don't really pay attention to the lyrics, which is fine because the Persona 3, like lyrical music compared to like Persona 4 and 5 is a lot more like it doesn't have as much to do with what's going on, per se. It's more um, like expressionistic in the way it's written. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in that regard, it's it dramatically works really well in favor of the story. Um, I think the choreography during the songs is really good. I like mm-hmm. I like all the dancing, especially the opening is is definitely the strongest one in my opinion. Soul phrase. Um, yeah, but then the and Jonathan mentioned this that the singing is for the most part not very good. And I do want to say like before we before we judge them too harshly. These songs are not, they weren't really written to be sung in this way. They were Uh written to be sung and then like heavily processed to the point that they're highly stylized. So Soul Phrase a little bit less so, and especially um, Brand New Days and Memories of You, those should be sung as, as like ballads, that would be fine. But like Wiping All Out is, and, and Mass Destruction would be the same thing if they did that one. If you sing those live, it's not going to sound good, like, no matter what, because they weren't written that way. They were written to be heavily processed. 
they were written in a register that would strain the vocalist specifically to get that kind of sound, which is, uh, some anime do that a lot, actually. Um, but that doesn't mean they couldn't have made changes to make them work mm-hmm. better in a live format. Like, Wiping All Out, and I, I compared it to the original from the, the P3P soundtrack, it's in the same exact key, which is fine, except it's clearly out of range of Mitsuru's uh, singing range. And they could have just brought it down like a third, and it probably would have sounded a lot better, and no one would have known the difference. So I don't know why they didn't do that. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt as well. That like wiping all out is a a really cool song, but but it's just not well suited for live performance for the reasons that you said. And that also there's nothing in the manual that says that you can't make modifications because they do make modifications to their performance of Memories of You. They do a much more ballad version of the song. Um, you know, that, that makes it kind of more approachable and appropriate for the musical format. But wiping all out, it felt like they were very insistent on trying to make it as close to the original version of the song as possible. And it's like, well, one, a huge amount of that song is wrapped in English by Lotus Juice, who is part American and who grew up in L.A. So it's like he's a native English speaker. He can rap in English. The guy they do, I was like, props to him. But he's clearly not a native English speaker. And I cannot imagine how stressful it is to try to rap in a non-native language. But it's like, if you don't have someone that can rap in English, don't do the fucking song where or, half of it is someone <laughs> rapping in English. And I mean, it's like, it is a significant part of the song. They could have like cut that part down and expanded the, the chorus part so that they could have done the rap as a background track instead or something. Because, you know, the instruments aren't all live or anything. Mm-hmm. There's no rule against that. Yeah, they should have yeah. probably just used, like, Lotus Juice's tracks from that song. Like, if they, and just had it be part of, effectively, the, like, recorded instrumentation rather than trying to have a live performer do it. And they, like, do, they do have the guy, like, standing in the back, sort of, not dancing, just sort of pointing a lot. But he's, like, part of the, the scenery, the staging there. But, I, I don't know. Like, you know, they could have they done something different that would have made that more effective yeah here's what i wish they had done it 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 wouldn't work because this this so the this song is the second song in the musical wiping all out and it's back to back with an original song for junpei called i am no hero junpei is the other person in this play who can sing he can sing and he can rap pretty decently because there's rapping in that and i have always said i've imagined lotus juice in persona 3 as just junpei rapping and i kind of wish it had been junpei off on the side doing the rap uh while mitsuru is doing her thing uh that wouldn't have worked because junpei is getting ready to do his solo so that would have been hard um, but yeah, However, wiping all out is sorry. What? Oh, it would have been amazing. I agree. It would have been amazing. You know, wiping all out is both kind of a low and a high point of this play for me because it's a low point because you just feel so bad for the person singing as Mitsuru because she, as you say, Thomas, she didn't. They they could have lowered the register for her. She just physically can't hit those notes and it's painful. But she's dancing great, and I think the choreography of Wiping All Out is super cool. It's one of the best things in the whole play, but you've got someone who can't rap the parts, and you've got someone who can't sing the music, and it's almost like, man, if they had just done that as the Lotus Juice track, the Lotus Juice slash Yumi Kawakura track playing, and then they were doing this dance to it, it would have been fine, I think. Yeah, it's uh, The vocalist is Mayumi Fujita, by the way. Okay. Oh, yes, you're right, because this yeah. is a P3P it's song. It's a P3P, yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, yeah. yeah. It's almost all music from Portable and Fess. Um, yeah. There's only, like, a couple of instrumental tracks they used from the original and then, then Kimi no Kyoku at the end. 
Yeah, yeah which and, is, some yeah. of that's weird. <laughs> well, I think one of the interesting things there, if you, if you watch, like, the, you know, the recordings of the Persona Music Live events, when they have musicians singing and people in cosplay dancing, and they often, they use those same dancers to do the choreography for the games. Mm-hmm. It's it's really cool. They, like, do really awesome dances, and it's like, I kind of wish they would have just focused on that a little bit more, because the staging is really good. I especially like the part where um, all of Mitsuru's backup dancers in Wiping All Out are, like, they're, like, feminine, they're, like, women shadows mm-hmm. or something, and then Akihiko comes in and punches them all in the face. With with his big comically over large <laughs> yeah. boxing gloves, which I fucking loved him coming in wearing those. Yeah, um, yeah. Can and we I, talk I, about Akihiko for? Oh, well, sorry. Well, I was just going to say the other thing with wiping all out is that I do love the like playfulness of having Mitsuru be charmed, and that's like the context of the song. Like that's all my that's my favorite stuff about this whole thing is like the story is like very poorly delivered, but it's so creative and like fresh in kind of like what they're trying to do and the pieces of the kind of world and the game and the style that they're pulling on and so it's like it's just a very frustrating to have this really cool idea that is really incredibly choreographed that is just let down because they couldn't figure out how to get the song part of it to actually all fit together yeah yeah uh i did just want to give a shout out though I do think my favorite actor, my favorite two actors in this are Junpei and Akihiko. Mm-hmm. But the Akihiko guy has less to do, but he steals the show every time he shows up because he got the fucking assignment. When he shouts his persona's name, Polyduces, he like, it's, I can't believe he was able to do that every night performing this because it's a hell of a scream. And then he's doing all the boxing stuff is so fun and they play it up so much. That's just a great great performance it is it is too bad because everyone gets to sing a song basically every one of the main c's members but he only gets to sing half of wiping all out and only as an accompaniment to mitsuru yeah he doesn't get his own song i'm sure he gets one again later because as you said earlier thomas like while they did obviously plan on making more i assume that if this stage had, if this thing had bombed, they obviously wouldn't have. Um, so I, that is my idea also of probably why they use Memories of You here is they're like, eh, we don't know for sure if we're actually going to get to do the other ones. So we might as well do the best song when we know we can definitely do it. Because yeah. from what I can see of a song list, it looks like they do just like do it again later. <laughs> when, when I think they do it like three times total or yeah. something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like so uh, presumably the Akiku guy gets like stuff to do singing in the other. Uh, plays, but for this one, he is, I think, the most talented actor. I think he's like in his register. And we should say, you know, that's also like could depend on that just happens to be the performance we saw. It's he was just like nailing it because obviously this was a thing they performed a lot. Um, but at least in the performance we saw, I think that he just like every line delivery was really sharp. It was all in the right register. He didn't have the issue that like some of the actors, particularly Ucardi's actor, had in like over shouting lines because they're all mic'd up so it's like when she like some of them are too forceful with the line deliveries and it becomes really harsh um and he's like projecting his voice the perfect amount it feels like that dude probably has like acted in that theater a bunch or something because it just feels like he like knows the space and knows what he's doing really well um and so all the choreography all the line deliveries are really on point and it's just unfortunate that this is a part of the story where he has like the least to do but he's the guy giving the best performance yeah of course in the games he's like not part of the team yet in uh-huh. the story yeah 
But I love Junpei in this too. I, I think they made an interesting choice to like change Junpei's characterization to a certain degree where he becomes the goofy comic relief playing to the audience, which is a, you know, stage trope. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he had a lot of fun with it. There's at least, there's at least like, I feel like a good confidence to what he does with Junpei that some of the actors don't have. It's overdone in some places, but I did enjoy it. Uh, and of the two original songs in this one, neither are good, but I thought Junpei's was fun. Junpei's is definitely the better one. And yeah, I think Junpei works as the character or like the comic relief element in that like it feels like the actor is like appropriately playful. Like I suspect because I looked at, you know, some of the scenes I looked at with the female main character version I suspect that some of those differences are actually just like them kind of like vibing and coming up with, oh, let me do this line this time in some of these places that are like our little just like, here's a one sentence gag. Let me change it up for this night's performance. That's like not a particularly big line or something. And he does that in a couple of places that feels like he's appropriately playful on stage that has a slightly improvisational feel because I suspect it like pieces of the performance are slightly improv- improvisationally probably changes it up each night a little bit, um, which is really appropriate for the character. And you can also right. tell the audience enjoys Junpei's performance more because mm-hmm. you can actually hear them reacting more when he does a joke or something. Yeah. So clearly yeah. that played that played better live as well as on the tape. Yeah, there's one part where he's like, they do the whole thing where the main character's like, you're way too close, you're way too close. And then he starts like headbutting him in the forehead with like the bill of his uh, baseball cap. And I thought that was probably the funniest part of the whole play is the actor just going bop, 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 <laughs> bop um, in his head. Yeah, absolutely. No, that stuff's good. But let's break down some of these songs because I, you know, in general, I think if if one thing I would do to improve this play would be to cut down a lot of the verbal exposition. It's Persona 3. If you haven't played the game, you're not going to get it anyway in in a 90-minute stage play. They can make it work in a movie. You're not going to make it work in a play that way. So I wish they would have just cut down and made it a little more abstract and had more songs either for singing or for uh, the the, the different sort of interpretive dance and choreography things they do. Because whenever that stuff comes up, it's at least interesting. It's not always great, but it's at least interesting. Uh, And I do think they missed a couple opportunities for songs. I was completely expecting, because if I wrote the Persona 3 musical, this is what I would do. When the the main character gets ready to do the evoker and shoot himself in the head and summon his Persona for the first time, why is that not where you do a Burn My Dread musical number? That should be, he's getting ready to do that, and you do a big Burn My Dread musical number, and it ends with him doing the Persona thing. That would have been great. They don't do it. Disappointed me deeply. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Sean, I mean, it would have been like, a good. It would have been a good place to do it, but I don't know. Like again, they're doing. They're they're probably like, like thinking, okay, we're going to do more of these, so they just don't want to sure. choose every song right <laughs> away. Um, so it's like that would be a good spot to do it. You could do it other places too. It would be, yeah. No, there's, 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 there's lots other of opportunities. Okay, we have six songs in this. Let's start with the first one, Soul Phrase, which is not like in the sort of diegesis of the musical. It's like sort of an opening stage setting thing, uh, which is interesting. If you don't know, Soul Phrase is the song that is the Persona 3 portable opening. And it's, is that the only Persona opening ever that's like primarily in Japanese? Of three, four, and five, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if one or two didn't have vocal openings. Yeah, one or two had instrumentals, I think. Well, I don't know. I had Dream of Butterfly, but. No, it well, is the it, only one that's sung by a man. What, yeah, it depends on what version of the games you're talking about with one in the twos. Because uh, yeah. Persona yeah. 2, Innocent Sin, does, but only in the remake. And Persona 1 does, but only in the remake. 
Okay, so yeah. But anyway, Soul Phrase is an interesting song. I've never even loved Soul Phrase as a song. It's not one of my favorite Persona numbers, but I actually agree with you, Thomas. It is one of the better... It is probably, as just a musical number, the best staged and sung one. It, it helps that it's the main character doing the singing. Well, yeah, but and I see, Tom- why, I see why they chose this one over Burn My Dread, because... It has a chorus that's like a little bit more hype and easier to sing as an ensemble. Mm-hmm. And it it gets there faster than Burn My Dread does. So I yeah. think it actually, in my opinion, it's the best song in the musical. I think it works really well as an opening statement. And like because they're singing as an ensemble, it hides the messiness a little bit. And it's a little more fun. Yeah, I think it, I think I agree with you that it was a good choice because it feels like it's it feels more like a normal live performance kind of song to take um and so yeah the, the all the actors singing together and it really helps that Aoi Shota can really sing really well uh, because at first i initially thought it was actually just the recording because it was so good and then i realized oh because once other people started singing i'm like oh no this is like a live performance of the song holy shit um which is almost bad that like it starts so strong cuz it really sets you up with high expectations and then they go into wiping all out later and you're like okay Put my expectations in check, because it's not all going to be as good as Soul Phrase. By the way, it's also, it is more than half an hour before they get to the next song. Uh-huh, yeah. That's a um, problem, yeah. Yeah. Because I actually loved this. I, I had, and when we had selected this, Sean, I had watched the beginning of this to make sure it was, like, working for YouTube and had the subs and all of that. And I thought the Soul Phrase number was awesome, and I expected the, I expected all of it was going to be kind of a high-energy musical. And it's very much not. But I do think as a as a song, this is the best one in this musical because it just, as you say, the you've got a really good like group choreography. Aoi Shota does a great job singing it. It's the kind of song that lends itself to musical theater very well. And it is a very high-energy opening for what is often a very low-energy play. Yes. Um, and then we talked about Wiping All Out. We talked a little bit about I Am No Hero. But I think we should just talk about the two original songs kind of as a pair. Yes. Um, because I didn't even go into this... I didn't know that there were going to be original songs. I mean, it's probably, I mean, it's almost certainly the right choice because if you're going to do a musical, like none of the other Persona 3 songs are like, they don't deliver any of the narrative information you need to be delivered by a, mus- a song in a musical. Um, but but the problem is that I think both of those songs, I'm No Hero, which is Junpei's song, and A Place Where I Belong, which is Fuka's Disney Princess song, um, are so painfully generic musical songs amidst like music from persona three, which is as far away from like a generic kind of musical styled song. I think you could really get, well, not as far away, but pretty far away. Yeah. Well, I think it's, yeah, no, go ahead, Thomas. Well, I think I am no hero lines itself up a little more closely with the persona style, but it also sort of cheats because it uses like Mm -hmm. the meme voice line where he says, ta-da, Junpei has leveled up. Like, it incorporates a few more elements, even if the musical style isn't, like, exactly in line. So it feels more, like, fun in, in character, if not, like, musically styled similarly. Yeah, like, that's, a, and that's like, the one that has a really fun performance to it through the choreography. So it's, like, the song is kind of secondary, really, because the song's even, like, only half sung. Because there are lots of parts where he's more just kind of delivering dialogue or, like, doing a little joke during it. 
Yeah. I mean, both of those songs, Sean, suffer from what you call the knuckles rap syndrome of I'm just going to talk about what I'm seeing and thinking uh-huh. about. And so I Am No Hero is very literal for like Junpei's. And this is how they characterized him in the movies. And it, it's an extrapolation of something that's in the game of him being jealous of the main character. Uh, there's literally a lyric in this song that I loved. The translation was just, your existence brings me pain, which is a fucking <laughs> great like frame grab to get. Uh, so it's very literal for Fuka's, uh, which I wrote in my notes as Futaba. So I was not all there. That is a Persona 5 character. But Fuka's solo is like super like it's just like i had parents and they were mean to me and now i'm sad i'm really sad to be a doctor they wanted me to be a doctor but i'm not and i'm sad and it is like it's it's the disney princess song both of these also kind of remind me of like the different disney broadway musicals when they go to do those and it's like oh the movie didn't have enough songs to make a broadway musical out of we got to add songs and the lion king broadway musical did a great job with that Every other Disney Broadway musical did a terrible job with that, and so you get stuff like this. So, it, you know, it actually is in a certain musical theater tradition of the bad filler songs, but the, the, uh, the Fuka one is rough. I mean, I was checking my phone for about half of the Fuka song. I was like, okay. It goes so long. <laughs> because there's also, like, there's nothing happening on stage. It is the most boring fucking thing. When everything else, when they have these cool musical sections like I Am No Hero and, and Wiping All Out, the song performance of Wiping All Out is bad. Everything that's happening on stage is awesome. A Place Where I Belong is just Fuka standing very solemnly and then the main character standing a little bit awkwardly off to the side. They're not using anything interesting about the projector. They're not using the staging and like the narrow kind of deep staging they have with the way they set up the, the stage. It's just, I'm going to stand here and exposit in a very generic song. It also, it's at this point in the, in the story where it's like, it's really high stakes. Like, they might die. And they just stop to do this slow ballad. And they sort of try to set this, like, character moment up with Fuka way earlier. And it winds up being more effective when they're, like, on the train earlier. Like, you get mm-hmm. all that information from those two yes. minutes with no dialogue. And then you get to this and it's like, but let's stop so we can sing about it because she needs to sing a song in this musical. Yeah, because I actually wanted to like, zoom in on that earlier thing on the train, which I think is like my two favorite scenes in the play are that train scene and then the scene where they're in Tartarus as it transforms and everything gets kind of surreal. And that train one is great. Like that is like probably the best example of like, what this style of performance can do really well because there's no dialogue. It's all just physical performance and blocking. It uses the rear projector really well in a subtle way to have the train move and everyone pantomiming the like their body swaying as the train accelerates and decelerates. They have the instrumental version of Brand New Days playing here, which I didn't realize was setting up. At the time, I did not know it was setting up a later inexplicable performance of Brand New Days, uh, which we'll talk about. Um, but that's a great instrumental piece to sort of just like get you in the mood and it shows Fuka and you see Fuka being bullied. You see that like other people are aware of it, but they're not really ready to help her yet. It's like a great scene um, that, as you say, Thomas, like delivers all the information you need just through like blocking and physical performance um, and mood through the staging and the music without needing to have your expository bad piano song. Um, then, but then they felt compelled to do it anyways later in the play. You know, I, Thomas, I think them. you're, yeah, Thomas, I think you're right that like the what we get from Fuka out of the choreography in the instrumental brand new day scene on the train 
is everything you need to know about Fuka. Like, because all that stuff with her parents, that's not in the games. That's not in the movies. That's just, like, this weird, like, extra backstory they've invented because they need her to sing it. And we already know everything that's important about her, so it's completely unnecessary. But, yes, and Sean, I will agree, that is a, a really impressive piece of choreography and just a very high-energy moment in the play because Brand New Days is a great song. It's got a good energy for that. It's your first time going to the school. It's a, it's a very fun moment. Yes, it's a very fun moment. But is setting up uh, the performance of the full version of Brand New Days with Yukari singing it. This is where, you know, the context of Brand New Days is that is the end credit song to episode, I guess, the like original material from Persona Fest. Which like the context of the song is in that story is about all the main characters from Persona 3. Do, you know, spoilers for Persona 3, the main character fucking dies, right? They're all dealing with the grief of that. And the story is about time literally stops for them. Um, they're all dealing with their grief in different ways, which drives a wedge between them, which they fight each other, and then they overcome it, and then they all find a way to move on to brand new days. And that's what that song is about. And so they're just, like, suddenly putting it here with Yukari and the main character, and with the most tenuous connection, which is that they both had lost parents in the explosion ten years ago, is, like, the only thing they find to latch a couple of lines of that song onto. Um, but it's like a great song. It's a whatever performance of this really good song, but it makes no sense at all. If you're paying attention to the lyrics contextually at this point in the story. Yeah. I found that very jarring. I was like, I was kind of baffled because I, I was kind of wondering if they would do it when they had the instrumental version earlier and then they stopped and I was like, okay, no, there's no way they do that. That would make no sense. And then they just do it. And like, they sort of force Yukari into the situation, too, where, like, they have to exposit her motivation through this song because she feels useless because I guess she just hasn't even summoned her persona in this version of the mm-hmm. story yet. And this is, like, I, I guess this would be after the train in the actual story. Yes. I mean, this is, like, technically, I think they have fought two full moon shadows. There's, like, a weird said passage of time here where they, at the end, they this is, that's their third full moon, is what they say. It's like, right. this feels like it took place over the course of, like, two days. But yes, yeah. apparently it's been, like, two months in-game, relatively speaking. Yukari still is not summoned her persona yet. And so it's, like, <laughs> I just, I, I find it very funny, because after, it's after Junpei's song when they, they fight that, like, train shadow yeah. and they all walk off and Junpei's kind of mad because the main character stole his whatever. And then Yukari is like sitting on the stairs in the back and she does that anime thing where she looks up at the sky and goes, ah, and that's how they enter. That's like how they start this scene. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, especially watching it a second time for me, it was like, this is, this is just like, again, they're just like, Oh, we need her to sing something. So I guess it'll work at this point in the story. Yeah. It is bizarre. Also, she she has the worst voice of the cast, I have to say. Like, Mitsuru can't hit those notes, but it's more because they've put it out of her register. Yukari's voice is very thin. It's not always on pitch. This is not as hard a song to sing as Wiping All Out. It's generally a bad performance. And you know that because there are some parts of it where Aoi Shota comes in and duets with her. And he's better in her her existing register than she is, which is a really interesting dynamic going on in this sort of duet. Well, like, even though Aoi Shoda is a male singer, like, he easily has the highest voice of any performer yes. here. I mean, he can hit some insanely high notes. Uh, it, it, it is, like, it is rough having him do a duet with someone who just cannot 
saying nearly to his level. Yeah, that that feels like the, you know, I this is professional theater. They they could have gotten better people. It's you know, it's it's a little weird that they didn't really get people who could do the singing. And I I feel a little bad for the actress because she's clearly been directed to do this version of Yukari that is like very relentlessly positive in the face of all this dark shit, which is not Yukari's characterization mm-hmm. in the game and doesn't really work here. I also think Yukari has the worst costume in this play. It's like the most, it doesn't really evoke Yukari from the video game that well. Yeah, I agree. I think she's just like oh, all around the worst realized character of of the main group. Like it just feels like there's something kind of fundamentally off about her, um, her not being yeah. able to summon her persona like all of her stuff with like the Kirijo group and all of that is just there's no way they don't cover enough of that material in the story to then have it like come up where it comes up in the finale like from the movie um and so yeah she's just a character I think that's kind of like lost in in the overall production yeah but let's talk about the most baffling part of this whole thing which is that it ends with Kimi no Kyoku as our sixth and final song Memories of You and it is the male main character singing it just fully in the original register of the song, which is incredible. Um, but wow, that is so... I think even if you hadn't played Persona 3 and cried in, in a corner while you heard that song the first time, like, you know, we did, um, or I did, you would still look at that song and be like, this makes no sense as an ending to this play. Yeah. I, I started cackling when it started happening because I thought it was so funny that they decided to do this <laughs> song here. And it was, it felt... And, you know, maybe we're wrong about this, but it felt the most like we're not entirely sure. You know, it hasn't been greenlit yet that there's going to be the next part done. So this is the best song. This is the most famous song from the game. It's just let's just get it in there because it's a great song. Um, and, you know, I think I really liked hearing Aoi Shota's performance of it. And I like the kind of musical ballad version of the song they do. Um, but it just emotionally makes zero sense it's like it makes anti-sense that this song plays uh, at this point in the play at all it's just complete nonsense it reminds well and when me- i talk about inconsistent characterization of the main character like he has not demonstrated mm-hmm. the kind of poetic thinking about the world that would necessitate the lyrics of kimi no kyoku so when it comes out of him it sounds good from aoi shoda it makes no sense from the character they've built over the preceding 90 minutes sorry thomas i interrupted you but well yeah it, yeah well it I don't know why, but it reminded me of, like, the stereotypical South Park ending, where there's, like, cheesy <laughs> music playing, and Stan says, you know, I learned something today. And then they just yes. explain the moral of the story. Yes. And, and this is, like, the Persona musical version of, you know what, C's? I learned something. I'm gonna die. <laughs> yeah, yes, it's, basically. It's, like, what's weird is that I think... The play actually has a really nice ending spot, which is the scene that precedes this performance where Pharos comes in and does this whole thing where it's like, you know, I've learned my name, Pharos, and he gives this very ominous thing. And it's like a cool beat to end on because, you know, it's obviously this is an incredibly incomplete story. It would never be anything close to a complete version of the story. So there's no great spot to really end it. But that's, I think, the best beat they had. It has this dramatic, ominous feel. Um... Obviously, that means they wouldn't have a musical performance there. But considering the kind of up and down quality of the other musical performances, I saw that as a plus side of of ending it there. Um, 
And then it goes from there to basically, as you say, like the main character stepping out center stage, being like, I really learned something today. Friends are good. And then he starts singing. It's effectively the substance of it. It's like, I, like everything else felt like it was building up to the kind of ominous, unsettled moment because nothing in the story has been settled. And then you're just trying to wrap this really pretty bow on it um, and also just ignore that this entire song is sung um, from the perspective of someone singing to this person they love that has passed away, which at no point is something that has occurred in this play. Yeah, and the, the staging is weird, too. Like, the staging's pretty good. They're all, like, you know, looking mm-hmm. up at the distance, and it's like, but nothing happened. Like, you didn't lose anything yet. What, what are you remembering? Yeah, it's like, it, not only have you not lost anything, like, theoretically, the point is that you have all come together as a group for the first time. So it's yeah. like it's like this weird sort of, like, wistful song is... Like, this is the beginning of the story, not the end of the story. So why are you right. doing the end of the story song right here? It's the protagonist singing about his own death. That's the uh-huh. funniest thing to me. It is him singing from it, the past about his future death from the perspective of a character he hasn't met yet. And I know if you were just watching this play without knowing Persona 3, which I doubt applied to literally anyone who has ever seen this, um, you wouldn't know all of that. But if you do, like... And I think even if you don't know Memories of You, the lyrics are not subtle about what it's about. It's like very clearly a song about singing to someone you've lost, which no one in this play has yet. Um, So yeah, we're kind of beating a dead horse, but it is funny. It is objectively a funny way to end this play. And the movie had an interesting way of solving this problem, which was to write a new song for this point in the story that was very good, actually. And would have actually been really easy to sing here. I wonder, I have to assume, like, it probably wasn't ready when they were producing the musical. Mm -hmm. But if they could have gotten the rights, it would have been, like, pretty good, actually, to do that. Yeah, like, I suspect the timeline might be a little bit too tight for them to have done, like, a full version of... I have uh, the numbers here. It's Persona 3 Movie 1, Spring of Birth, where where What You're Talking About, Thomas, would have come from, released November 23rd, 2013. And then this play was being performed January 2014. So, yes, there's no way they would have had that ready. Yeah, so that's like, because that would have been great, um, because it is, I mean, obviously it's the perfect song for this, because it's also, like, it fits perfectly within the musical tone and style of the rest of the Persona 3 music. Yeah, the song um, is uh, More Than One Heart, by the way. Yes, thank yeah. you. I was, I was desperately trying to, I remembered the heart thing, I was like, is it, like, one heart, is it, like, the two hearts? It's something about a heart and the number of hearts. Um, I'm remembering, it's spring, exactly. the winter is gone, that's, like, what I know. Uh, but no, it's a great song. It's it's in. It. I do wonder how much of this also is, as Thomas, you hinted at earlier. Most Persona songs are in English. It is mm-hmm. easier for the Japanese cast to sing in Japanese. Does that influence what you choose? Which you know, then there's always the question: Well, could you write Japanese lyrics to some of these? And obviously, you could. Um, but yeah, and I'm curious if the other plays did any of that. And you know, because I, I feel like you'd have to adapt more write more original songs, change the existing songs up more if you're really going to go through and do the whole story, which they did. There are four of these fucking plays. Yeah, and all the other ones have way more Five. Music, oh, shit. Know? Well, yeah, it's yeah. five, but, like, the fifth one is, like, for my understanding, it's, like, a shorter one that they did at the same time they did Act 4. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. So, like, and all the other ones, when you, if you look at the Wikipedia page, it, like, lists, like, the musical performances for all of them, and all the other ones have way more. Um, yeah. So it does feel like this one's like weirdly kind of sparse in that regard, and it struggles with the exposition and the setup for everything. Yeah. 
Well, we're, we're about out of time, but are there any final thoughts on Persona 3, The Weird Mas- Masquerade, Part 1, Ao no Kakusei? The best piece of choreography in this whole thing is in that weird surrealist section. There's the part where Mitsuru and Yukari are miming each other as though yes. they're in a mirror. <laughs> and then two actors come in who are the shadows, so they're all covered in black. And they do, the, and they like um, also mime as their shadows. And then Yukari and Mitsuru turn to walk away, and they get on the ground like horizontal to them and mime walking as their shadow like projected on the ground. And that is fucking sick. Um, and I have never seen something like that. It is a really good moment. And whoever are like the kind of like background performers that do all that choreography, that's like really talented stuff. Like I bet those, there must be like break dancers or something. Cause it's really break dancing kind of move. Um, and that was the stuff in this I really enjoyed. I'm, I, I already found, uh, like the other versions on YouTube of the other plays and I'm definitely going to watch them because I, I very much enjoyed this despite its rough edges but it has a lot of rough edges. Yeah. I don't know if I will necessarily go on and, and watch them. Maybe I will see some other clips. Thomas, you probably would enjoy watching more of these. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to try to. Um, I can't find any of the other ones that are like subtitled, so it might be a little more difficult for me than Sean. But Yeah, I, I didn't find subtitled ones. But. Yeah. But we all know the story, and you know the song lyrics, and you can always, you know, for most of the song lyrics, you can look them up if you don't know them. It um, is there yeah, are it is, there are fewer resources on the Shimagami Tensei Wiki for the original songs that are in these plays. So that is that's very true. <laughs> yes, it's understandable, but it's too bad. Yeah, if, I, I am waiting for when they patch in uh, uh, a place where I belong by Fuka into Persona Three Dancing Moonlight. I'm sure that's going to be the next big DLC. Is is that yes. one a real bar? Sean. Sean, do you think at some point Netflix will randomly drop part two of this play subtitled on their service and have it up for a couple of years, but nothing else? I mean, it is the thing that has, you know, as our world gets to become a darker, darker place. I always reflect on it. I feel like the turning point was when Netflix took down Persona 3, the movie number two, Midsummer Night's Dream, um, and ruined my favorite running joke on this podcast when they removed that movie from their catalog. So if they can get... Uh, Persona 3, The Weird Masquerade, Act 2, The Ultramarine Labyrinth. If that can show up on Netflix, I think the world would become a better place. 